Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to a brand new DNF1 F1 podcast. How are you? I hope that you are all doing well and thank you once again for being here. It's great to have you along and we have got a great topic of discussion for this episode. For those of you that weren't aware, news broke just yesterday at the point of recording that Daniel Ricciardo will be returning to Formula One. That's right, I'll repeat that. The honey badger himself is coming back to the F1 grid. Not so long ago, we were discussing whether or not we would expect to see Daniel Ricciardo race in Formula One. It's only taken 10 races since his last time out, and he is already joining the grid once again. He will be replacing Nick DeVries in the AlphaTauri team as part of the Red Bull program, of course, and discussing what went down, why this move has happened, and what this could mean for Red Bull and AlphaTauri going forward into the future. We've got F1 journalists joining us this afternoon. We have Sam Coop joining us from Formula Nerds. Sam, first of all, thanks for coming on the show. First time on. Great to have you. How are you, mate? Yeah, I'm very good, thank you. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I, I appreciate you you asked me on and your listeners probably noticed that I have a very, very similar name to Sam Cooper, uh, not to be uh, confused. <laughs> yeah, I think it's important because uh, I think some of our ardent listeners who uh, may not be watching this on YouTube, if they're listening to us on their favourite audio podcast platform, by the way, guys, leave us a five-star review on there if you are listening to us on that. Yeah, they probably get confused by the name, that there is a distinct difference between yourself and Sam, although... I'm sure Sam won't mind me saying the facial hair for you, Samuel, is definitely top tier by comparison. <laughs> Not that I can talk. I can only grow a bit of a stubble by comparison. So Sam Cooper has got me well beat on that one anyway. So I'm sure you won't mind. <laughs> Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Awesome. Appreciate it. 
Well, of course, um, Sam, given it's your first time on the show with us, we have a bit of protocol that we like to uh, put forward with our guests. And that's a bit of an icebreaker question to get to know a little bit more about their F1 interest. So if I may throw it your way, if I was to give you any F1 car from history and you could drive it anywhere you wanted to in the world, any circuit, could be a local car track for a day, what car are we driving and where are you driving it? Oh, that is a very, very good question. I've got to go with, and apologies for not knowing the name of the car off the top of my head, probably the 2008 McLaren, Ooh. Hamilton's first championship winning car. And it'd be Sao Paulo. Sao Paulo. It'd be Interlagos. Yeah. You know, that's a beautiful combination, obviously for historical reasons, but uh, Sao Paulo, very underrated circuit. And I think over the years, I think the sprint races there of recent years have actually warmed a lot more people to that circuit as a circuit that does often provide great racing. So, uh, yeah, no, I I really like that choice. And And it was a very interesting car to drive. I think a lot of people probably take for granted how well balanced these modern day F1 cars are, given how big they are. Back in 2008, when Lewis won his first world title, that was a very difficult hard, uh, car to handle. So it just was a real testament to how good those drivers were. Oh, completely. I don't know about you, but I kind of miss seeing the, the twitchiness through a corner, like really kind of having the driver wrestling the wheel. Um, but, you know, the, the modern speeds that they're able to corner out is something to behold in itself. Oh, absolutely. And I think, um, I mean, I was at Silverstone last weekend and I remember watching the cars go through Maggots and Beckett's and... For me, it was so tough. To, I mean, you could tell the, the best cars out of the field, but if someone asked me which one is the worst one, I thought, well, I, don't, I think that'd be a bit unfair because they all look relatively comfortable in that area. It's just some are better than others. But you could rewind 15 years ago back to that era and they would have been twitchier. The cars would have, the drivers would have been fighting the cars all over the place. It would have been so difficult to handle. The spectacle itself would have been even more thrilling than it was last weekend seeing the modern day cars. So I totally understand what you mean. I miss it too. I miss the sound, but uh, maybe one day in a more environmentally friendly manner, if possible. But of course, we're, yep. we are getting a bit sidetracked here, obviously away from the topic <laughs> yeah. at hand. Usually on this show, Sam, I do go off, off tangent a little bit, so I'll try and reel myself back in. The <laughs> okay. news regarding Daniel Ricciardo, big, big breaking news. And first of all, I think I wanted to focus a little bit on the Nick DeVries element in this. Um, are, are we surprised that Nick DeVries has been removed from the AlphaTauri team? No. Uh, I'm also not surprised at the, um, to be direct, the unceremonious way in which it's happened as well. Uh, that's very much the uh, the Red Bull uh, philosophy. You know, you just, you make the change, you do it quick and, you know, kind of uh, hopefully painless long-term. But I am surprised at the timing there was very much a look we've, he's got four races and I also thought the timing was that by that plan was also quite harsh because that the next race would have been Zanvoort Nick's home Grand Prix but the summer break is when Red Bull AlphaTauri have traditionally made those moves Helmut Marko obviously saying that there was four races and that was before Austria so it is a little bit of a surprise that it's happened before Hungary Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I was very surprised because whilst I expected Nick DeVries to be shown the door or to be replaced, I, like yourself, expected it to come around the summer break. Dr. Helmut Marko's quote saying he had about four races left to impress. The writing was always on the wall. 
it was just a case of everyone sitting there thinking, okay, it's probably going to happen in the summer break. We can probably speculate who's going to replace him. But it happened very, very quickly. And I think around about, even before Silverstone, we were getting indications or hints that Red Bull were looking to move Nick DeVries out. And the likely alternative was going to be Daniel Ricciardo. And, and as it was, literally a day or so after Silverstone, after the tyre test that Ricciardo had done, the decision was made very, very quickly. Are you surprised, not necessarily by the response or the the social media um, report or the social media um news I suppose broadcasts from Red Bull and AlphaTauri are, are you more surprised that we haven't heard a lot from Formula One or any affiliated parties with that because if I'm honest Sam I've not really seen hardly anybody that's not affiliated with an F1 team or or a partner actually talk much about Nick DeVries even as much as just to wish him well you're absolutely right on that it's been like they I saw someone do some analysis of the number of posts that Formula One had done um, from the start of the season on Nick DeVries, and it was like two or three. And then they were already into their 20s on Daniel Ricciardo posts within the day that he was announced as taking the Alphatari seat, which says a lot. It says a lot about where Daniel's place in the paddock and uh, how he's regarded in F1 circles. I, I think a lot of it is um, maybe just wanting to leave Nick, Nick alone, let him grieve, mourn kind of come to terms with that process but I would have liked to see more well-wishing uh, from official kind of affi- you know, affiliates as you say a lot of the fan base were very much like look this is harsh this is early uh, and so on and so forth but I think Nick just needs some downtime some time away from racing to kind of you know plan his next move so I think maybe that's partly to do with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I saw a few photos floating around today of Toto Wolf and Nick DeVries sitting down together, which looked like a lunch at Monaco. So, you know, make of that what you will, guys. Of course, you know, Mick Schumacher was unceremoniously removed from Haas last season to Toto Wolf's gain because he picked him up as the reserve driver. Maybe something may pan out for Nick DeVries in that element as well. Obviously, they do have a history together. So uh, we'll have to wait and see. But yeah, I was surprised too. And, and I completely agree with you, Sam. I, I think that there is an element to this that Ricardo is a huge uh, stable in Formula One. He's one of the most marketable drivers on the grid, arguably second behind Sir Lewis Hamilton in that regard. So it was obviously going to be a big thing. I imagine with Liberty Media's involvement as well, two more US races later on this season, especially Las Vegas, they're going to be absolutely oh, yeah. buzzing that Ricardo is going to be going there from a marketing perspective as well. Oh, completely. I mean, Daniel Ricciardo in Vegas is a license to print money. And let's face it, F1 doesn't shy away from a from an opportunity to print money. So, yeah, it's um, there's a lot to be excited about. But I think that for me, the biggest question is ultimately comes down to what Daniel Ricciardo are we going to get from next weekend? Are we going to get the Daniel Ricciardo of you know his early Red Bull career, or are we going to get the McLaren Daniel Ricciardo? Because I think that changes the yeah that moves the needle on on how the rest of the season goes. Absolutely. And and that is going to be the, the talking point that a lot of people, including ourselves, are going to be focusing on throughout the remainder of this season. Of course, we'll have a couple of races before the summer break where you'd imagine Ricardo would want to find his feet. But given he's going to the Red Bull Junior team and there's going to be a lot of elements to that car that I'm sure he'll be familiar with, with his time at Red Bull doing the sim work and the tyre test. It shouldn't be too much of an integration as perhaps it would have been for Nick DeVries when he was joining the team six months ago, having a background at practically half the grid, excluding, of course, Red Bull and AlphaTauri. Yeah, Daniel's a seasoned pro. He's a, he's a veteran. 
he's got a wealth of experience in different settings to to fall back on yes nick has a more maybe diverse racing experience but i think this is kind of also the the nucleus of why daniel was the decision that alpha Sauri and red bull ultimately came to is that you can put daniel in the car and he's a better barometer a better litmus test for where the car should be someone to benchmark against yuki in a better way than a liam lawson would have been so i think that's a lot of the thinking and obviously when it comes to AlphaTauri or Red Bull, it's a wider picture. It's not just two seats. It's always four, so on and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, looking back at Red Bull's history of their ruthlessness, I suppose, when it comes to replacing drivers, this isn't the first time that they've replaced a driver mid-season. I mean, I was looking online earlier today and I was I think it was about this is the fifth time they've done that since Red Bull's inception in 2006, where I think the first was Christian Kleon being replaced by Robert Dornbos. Um, in the 2006 season, then we had Scott Speed was replaced by Sebastian Vettel. I think we can all agree that worked out pretty well for Red Bull at the time. Sebastian yeah, Bourdais yeah. replaced by Jaime Aljuswari. Uh, Danny Kvyat replaced by Max Verstappen, of course, who went on to win yeah. his first race with the team and, of course, has gone on to dominate F1 over the last couple of seasons. And, and more recently, Gasly being replaced by Alex Albon at the Red Bull team itself. So, you know, Red Bull aren't familiar... Aren't, uh, unfamiliar, I suppose, with making this particular kind of change, they would probably put it down to being a rather successful practice given the history of some of the changes that they've made. But looking back on Nick DeVries' performances this season so far, Sam, and the fact that the car's also been quite bad, let's be honest, it, it's, I think, on one lap pace, according to the Delta, I think only Alfa Romeo have been slower on average throughout this season than Alfa Tauri. Would we say that the removal of Nick DeVries in such fashion was a fair one? Or do you feel like he should have been afforded a bit more time? I think really he should have been afforded some more time, given the difficulties with that car. And again, it's difficult because there is no real back marker this year in the traditional sense. It's more of a kind of a second group, uh, along with the Williams, the Alphas, and some of the, even the upper midfielders on a race-by-race basis. McLaren was certainly down there. Uh, towards the beginning of the season I think that's what makes it difficult to really kind of work out is he underperforming is Yuki overperforming in the car all those kind of things have worked against Nick ultimately but yeah the pace wasn't there and it it wasn't so much that he was making those gradual and he was improving but he was still making little mistakes and we don't obviously know what it's like behind the scenes how he's being managed, how he wants to be managed. Uh, But he was very closed off over the weekend, very scripted, very PR'd, as you'd almost expect. But it was almost like he'd kind of shut down a little bit. It was in denial, knew knew it was coming, writing was on the wall. But I think they should have given him at least a season. He's not early in his racing career, but he also is early in his F1 racing career. So he needed more time to adjust. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think in a way we could probably pay tribute to Nick DeVries at how good he was at trying to keep tie-lipped about these things because as cutthroat and as ruthless as Red Bull are, this wouldn't have been a decision that they would have just made right, right then and there. This would have been premeditated for some time. As I said already, when I went to the Silverstone race last weekend, I, I, I was there watching DeVries and Sonoda on the main stage doing the interviews with the AlphaTauri team and and I did often feel looking back on it 
that there was an element with Nick DeVries where it did feel a little bit reserved, that he was happy to be there, but it almost felt like he was trying to take it all in, that this wasn't going to last much longer, where it was Yuki Tsunoda was beaming. Um, he was absolutely happy getting the crowd going, starting the Tsunoda chance, which of course lasted throughout the whole weekend. Uh, for those that there would obviously know what I was talking about. But um, yeah, very much a contrast between the two. And as as I said, it did feel to me that the writing was very much on the wall for Nick DeVries in that regard. Yeah, completely. I think a lot of that is also down to Nick's personality. Like even when he was in Formula E and he was performing well, he's not that fun, happy-go-lucky guy. He's not Daniel Ricciardo. And or Yuki Snowder and Pierre Gasly, the relationship, the rapport that they built up, that was a very fun, easygoing relationship between the two. Um, and uh, as per the kind of the waiting to make the decision or, you know, it being writing on the wall, I think if you look at the Gasly decision it, well, in 2019, it felt like within a very few races that they were looking around going, nah, this isn't it. He, he, he's not swimming in this environment. He's sinking here. And I think the same feeling would have been had about Nick um, from within the first two or three races. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, if we don't see much on social media of well wishes within the F1 circle, the very least that we can do as fans, or at least I can do on this podcast, is wish Nick DeVries well in whatever he does next, because I've always rated him fairly highly. I I mean, there is always going to be that element that some very, very good drivers just aren't quite good enough to cut it in F1. And hopefully... He can go on to be successful elsewhere. He already has been successful, as you mentioned already, in Formula E and obviously in F2. We've seen many other drivers not quite make it in Formula 1 and go on to make very successful careers for themselves in other sports. And I'm, I'm pretty confident Nick DeVries, whatever he goes on to do next, will will be successful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I hope he... If he doesn't go back to Formula E, I hope he, you know, there's lots of other motorsport, you know, IndyCar, for example, or endurance racing. There's He can still have a fruitful career, Antonio Giovinazzi being uh, being evidence of that. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, And of course, in Giovinazzi's case, it just goes to show that uh, even at Ferrari, you can still win sometimes in the modern era. So there's always hope for everybody in that regard. Had to get that one in there. My followers will know why. But uh, Sam, of course... Regarding the decision to bring in Nick DeVries, it was a rather unorthodox one where, you know, Red Bull and AlphaTauri, they were looking for the driver to replace Pierre Gasly when he made the switch to Alpine for 2023. And, you know, there was a short list of drivers. We had, of course, Liam Lawson in there. Ricardo was a driver on that list, but he originally didn't want that seat at AlphaTauri going into the 2023 season. Of course, we'll talk a bit about that later on. They also had potentially Mick Schumacher, who in their mind wasn't quite ready for them or they felt wasn't quite good enough for them and obviously ended up being of Mercedes gain in that regard. And Colton Herter as well, who I'm pretty certain... AlphaTauri would have been able to bring him in via Red Bull if he was eligible, but he wasn't because he didn't have the super license points to get that done. So you take all of that in, it left an open door for someone like Nick DeVries to put in a performance like he did at Monza last season, which was impressive under the circumstances, although looking back, you can apply some caveats that perhaps um, diluted the, the level of performance that he put in in certain corners. And Dr. Helmut Marker was his biggest supporter. You know, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of arguments and discussion at Red Bull. Christian Horner was, uh, according to Dr. Helmut himself on another podcast, he said that Christian wasn't a fan of De Vries. He didn't want him in. There were other corners at Red Bull that didn't want De Vries in. They didn't think he had quite what it took to cut it at that team. 
but Dr. Helmut Marko stuck his neck out, uh, neck out and brought him in. And he was the one that was very vocal about De Vries's future as well, saying that, you know, he's got this many races left, all the writing could be on the wall, we've got these plans. Now that Red Bull have finally made that decision to replace him, and in quite dramatic fashion, quite early on compared to what we would expect from Red Bull, even by their ruthless standards, isn't our concern going forward at Red Bull, or perhaps in some corners, that the recruitment decisions may require a little bit more scrutiny before they're done, or... Are Red Bull going to acquire new strategies of their recruitment? I think I think both really. Um, I think that the the reason why Marco was maybe so harsh on De Vries and saying stuff like, you know, Perez performs well in the races and contrast to Nick De Vries and like comparing the two drivers who are obviously under pressure at the moment, I think comes from the fact that that decision last year was made with a level of haste. I don't think. Uh, yeah, after the Williams performance, you look at the overall situation. You go, okay, well, you've got Logan Sargent, who's the a Williams junior, but if he doesn't get the super license points after the stance the FIA have made with Colton Herter, you've got to assume they're not going to make an exception for Logan Sargent. They may have done, but you couldn't assume. Then Williams would have moved pretty quickly potentially to get Nick DeVries in the car, which would have left AlphaTauri potentially going, well, what do we do now? Daniel Ricciardo doesn't want the seat. We're not big on Mick Schumacher. Where do we go from here? Liam Lawson's not ready. Emo Oas is not ready. So I think there was a level of, oh, we've got to rush with this. So yeah, it's a, it was a fl- the flawed decision-making process from, from start to finish, which again is maybe why they've been so hasty in in making that call. What it says to me is a is a changing of their approach. And you started to get understanding of this when they announced that they're changing the name of AlphaTauri for next season. And it was very much a returning to a B team as opposed to a junior team, which implies that we're not necessarily going to go for so much youth. We're not necessarily going to give them as much time and it be a, a development ground. And th- there's a real departure there in how they've handled Nick DeVries compared to Sergio Perez, where Red Bull was traditionally the more cutthroat and brutal environment, where you know, you're not performing, you're out. Qualifying is a big part of the weekend. He's got to fix that soon, Sergio. He knows that. So, yeah, there's there's definitely a changing there um, within the team. But ultimately, they need to take their share of responsibility here. It was a flawed process from the beginning. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it kind of it kind of tells us a, a very telling story about the current state of the Red Bull Young Driver program at the moment. I mean... It's been a while, in all honesty, that Red Bull have been able to unearth a gem from that youth academy. I think you probably have to argue that Max Verstappen was the last real gem that they found. I mean, you can argue a case for perhaps Gasly and Alex Albon in certain regards, although I think Gasly came before Verstappen anyway. So, But, you know, the the jury will still be out on those long term. And even if they separate themselves from Red Bull entirely, they're still very decent Grand Prix drivers. But since then... 
we've often teased that the potential with some young drivers like the likes of Liam Lawson or Ayumi Iwasa who look ready to have at least an opportunity or be in the conversation. But beyond that, you start to have to wonder at Red Bull, is it worth their time to continue and persist with this programme? When there are many drivers I haven't mentioned already, I mean, the likes of Brendan Hartley, for example, who was brought in, then got rid of, brought in again. Um, Other drivers like Jaime Algeshwari, just off off the top of my head right now. And Red Bull are committing a lot to a programme where they want to churn out potential world champions. But other than Vettel and Verstappen, it's been a very um, costly and unfulfilling process in certain regards completely and it's that is it an environment that's so pressurized so difficult that it either makes you you know it makes you or breaks you basically and there's only a few that are ever going to be really of the red bull caliber that that's what we want and we identify that and yes there's a lot of collateral damage in the process but that just is how it is um or is is there inherently in the system are they damaging the development of these drivers because of how difficult it is and um, it's very difficult to put yourself in a position of a racing driver psychologically because i think to get to the even to the anywhere near the level that the f2 f3 drivers are at you need to fully be able to believe that you are the best and you can be the best you know there's so much to say about sports psychology Dennis Hauger, for example, though, has fallen away this season. He's really struggled. And he's gone from that kind of, oh, yeah, well, surely he's the next one. Uh, won the F3 title, looked convincing. And he's fallen away. So Red Bull have are starting to indicate that actually they're going to change their tact. That they've, they've, they're too thin across the board. They've got so many juniors in F2 and F3. Do we want to focus more on specifics? Because, yeah, I mean, you've got, yeah, Hauger, as I said, has fallen away. Awasa, I think, is probably a year or two away from being ready. He's he's there. He's got the speed, but he's raw. Enzo Fittipaldi has not been as convincing as I was expecting in the, in the Carlin. Zay Maloney's still in his first F2 season. Uh, Jack Crawford and, um, and Isaac Hadjar, both in their first F2 seasons. Hadjar, yeah, potentially. Crawford, I don't think, really is, is, is Red Bull material. Uh, and they're even kind of now talking about Pepe Marti uh, in F3, along with uh, Sebas Montoya, who's uh, you know, part of the program as well. So there's a lot there, but are any of them anywhere near the level that you'd be expecting? I don't know. It's difficult to kind of tell at this stage. Do you think in a way that the success of a driver like Max Verstappen, not even Sebastian Vettel in this regard, because obviously he was the first of that breed of drivers to come through, but because of how Max Verstappen got into Formula One at such a young age and because he was such an exceptional talent, do you think in a way that's probably corrupted um, the hierarchy at Red Bull into thinking that every potential young driver that they bring into their academy has to be measured against that benchmark when, in some respects, it's almost impossible to match up against? Yes and no, because they've got rid of drivers that they didn't feel were... We're up to, I mean, Jay and Daruvla has been taken off the off the, the bill. Um, who there was another driver, Johnny Edgar has been taken off the bill. Yeah, they they do remove drivers from the setup, but I think also there's that element of if Max is at the top of his game and is one of the greatest talents in F1 history. Let's face it, when all said and done, he probably will be the most decorated F1 driver of all time. The way he's going, what's the point in finding the next Max Verstappen when you've got Max Verstappen? 
you're set up for a clear a a driver and b driver in that team do you do you want to change your tact and go for a more kind of nico lewis mercedes dynamic or dare i say a max daniel red bull dynamic you know is it worth it for them i think then that's what they're now considering they're trying to weigh it up yeah it's an important point and you know, I suppose with an academy the size of Red Bulls, they've contributed a lot in terms of the personnel and the F1 grid. But rightly so, if they're going to put that money in and they want to unearth the next Max Verstappen and the next Sebastian Vettel, they are going to be ruthless in the standards that are required. I, I suppose, in some regards, the benefit of the new rules with the super license, i.e. you're not allowed to have one until you're 18, kind of works in favour of some of the drivers where Red Bull aren't looking at 15, 16-year-olds thinking, right, how are they going to fare in a Formula 1 car? like they did with Max Verstappen. So, you know, there is that element to it too. Oh, completely. And I I also think for every Oscar Piastri or or Max Verstappen or someone who comes through the ranks quickly and young, and we've seen a few drivers, you know, performing well before they're 20 in F1, you also get the Victor Martins or the Felipe Drogovic's who take a little bit more time, but because they've been allowed to mature, they look a more complete, um, more ready driver by the time they get to F1 or yeah. get near to it. Yeah, I mean, that's very true. I mean, how old was Sir Lewis Hamilton when he was in Formula? What was he, 22, 23? And, you know, Fernando Alonso. Yeah, Fernando Alonso uh, was quite, young, you know, early 20s as well. So it almost feels like, are we lowering the bar too much? I suppose as fans as well, when we're looking at the age of drivers, it's almost like we've gone down that football route where you're yeah. looking to unearth the next Ronaldo or Messi when they're 16 years of age and they get signed to something crazy like Real Madrid and you expect them to be amazing and then they don't. And it's almost like, yeah. well, is the system at fault or is the talent just not really there? Like, which one is it? Because it almost feels like in that regard, you could say the Red Bull Junior Programme are kind of guilty of the same problem. Absolutely. Yeah, completely. Like, uh, yeah, there's uh, there are a couple of um, Barcelona youths that ended up playing for like Stoke. I think I forget it was Desant, not Desantos. Oh, was it? Um, was it Hesse? Bojan. Oh, Bojan, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah, yeah. he was the next Messi, and but but he obviously was. So yeah, I I I see the see the similarities. There. I see the the parallels to that. Uh, but I also think that the sport has changed. You're not going to get someone like Damon Hill coming in at 31, doing a decade, winning a title in the pro- in, in the process. I just think it's changed. The psychology, you know, the the lower reaches of the sport, and also the, the, the psychology of it, and also the the sport science of it. You know, you've got Fernando Alonso r- driving into his what into his mid forties. He's what forty one, forty two. Uh, so you know, who knows when he'll retire? So the the game's changed, and I think we're still trying to work out exactly what the most productive way forward is for young drivers yeah I mean I really wish they would go back to looking for the next Damon Hill or something like that because then it give the rest of us a chance who haven't had an opportunity yet well into their 30s so uh you never exactly. know exactly I mean <laughs> but as e- equally you could end up being the next Nick DeVries so that's uh, that's the risk I don't um, know. and I think you know I mean, give me 11 races in F1 car, I'd be happy. I was just uh, thinking the same thing. I'll <laughs> happily do that. But uh, I would like to have raced at Silverstone. I feel for De Vries not being able to have the opportunity to race at his home race. Uh, that's that's obviously quite a crushing blow. Even if the attention was yeah. obviously going to be on Verstappen, that would have been nice mm-hmm. for him to have that. Um, moving on to Ricardo, because of course we should talk about him. Yeah. Ricardo 
coming in at this point of the season, there's obviously going to be a lot of questions asked of why is he doing it now? What is there to gain from him? Is there a view to it being perhaps uh, the reward of something much greater than this if he proves to be successful? I think, first of all, Sam, I think the first thing we have to ask is, why is Daniel Ricciardo joining, agreeing to join a team that he turned down more than six months ago uh, when he was leaving McLaren? I think, firstly, I don't think he really felt he could say no. I think, secondly... Going into the season, it was difficult to know that Yuki Tsunoda would have taken that step forward that he has. He looks more composed. He looks a much more complete driver this year than he has done, very much to Franz Tost's kind of uh, three-year philosophy that he has for drivers. Also, you now have a clear benchmark against how De Vries was doing. How far was he behind Tsunoda on average? Does Ricardo have to come in and just kind of better that? Or does he have to actually better Tsunoda? We don't know where the, where those metrics are. We don't know what a good half a season looks like for Daniel Ricciardo. But I think he's got that half season to fall back on. So it's an easier proposition for him. Also, from a kind of wider perspective, it's a, a win-win situation. Or it's a can't-lose situation for him. If he doesn't you know, do that well, and that is that, he got another half a season in F1 car. I certainly thought that his career was said and done in F1. If he does perform well, outperforms Snowden or matches or does whatever the, the, the Red Bull family want, he potentially opens up the opportunity to take that Red Bull seat. So yeah, it's uh, it makes sense in my head for Ricardo. Um, also, he gets to race at Vegas. Let's, let's not uh, minimise that in the decision-making process. We know how big he was on that. But I think what's really interesting is the use of the on-loan uh, wording in the press release not because that's new because that's ultimately how Red Bull structure their contracts that's how they've been able to make those mid-season changes before but the fact that they actually mentioned that in the press release does say a lot it's very much a look we're kind we if we like what we see we'll take him back thanks it's a, a, a clear nod to that and I think that's maybe to give Sergio Perez a bit of a, a kick up the arse yeah, it's an excellent point. And, you know, when I saw the news, I thought to myself, okay, the dominoes are starting to fall where Red Bull probably would want them to. Because at this point, you know, Nick DeVries always seemed like a bit of a stopgap signing anyway. I know we just spent the first portion of this episode sort of, you know, pouring our hearts out to him saying we feel for him. But ultimately, I never felt that the Nick DeVries acquisition was ever going to be a long-term option. As it were, perhaps Red Bull got rid of him sooner than they probably would have preferred. I, I don't imagine they would have signed a driver on for six months and then gotten rid of him uh, when a better option came. But ever since Ricardo came back to this Red Bull team, it always felt inevitable that it was just going to be a little bit more than just a market employee or a pseudo-reserve driver, if you like, that was going to step in if ever needed. And... Now that it's happened, a lot of people have raised the question, why go back to someone like Ricardo when he's had his time at Red Bull? He left McLaren, well, he was bought out of his McLaren contract rather than being able to stay there to get Piastri in. Why not go for someone new like Liam Lawson and see if he can prove, or even Ayumu Asa, to prove that they have what it takes to be in this team long term? I think... They wouldn't want to take Owasa out of his F2 season midway through. 
I, I think they want to see if he can recover in the championship fight. Uh, it's, it's you know, it was a decent weekend in Silverstone, but it's very much you've got to. He's got really got to take it to to Fred Vesti and Teo Porchero over the rest of the year, um, but he is there or thereabouts. Same with Liam Lawson, he's P two in Super Formula. He's won two races out of the first five. He could win that title. I also think that whilst Liam Lawson is immediately quick, and we've seen that he's been competitive or won very early in each category he's raced in, often on debut, like with Super Formula, like with F2. And you know, you look at last season, he went P3, P2, P1, retired from a podium position in the fourth race, and it tailed away from there. He he could have well been in the championship fight. But I think, again, it comes back to that, what's a more realistic benchmark? Because let's face it, Liam Lawson would still just be a rookie you're putting in the car. You don't actually get as much information from that as you do someone like Daniel Ricciardo. And you can go, right, he's a seasoned vet. He knows what he's doing. So that's, I think, where that decision-making process basically comes from. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, what's important to mention as well, of course, is you know when we're talking about Liam Lawson, there is that element that this probably is the wrong time. More than Naomi Uwasa in this case to put him in that F1 seat. Now, I'm sure if it was offered to Liam, he'd bite your hand off for it. But Red Bull seemed to have sure. a plan for him in the short to medium term yeah. anyway, whether it's put him in that AlphaTauri in 24 or if for whatever reason, they want, Ricardo had to stay another year or something happened, they could put him in in 25. The options are there for Liam. And in, and in some ways, this opportunity, whilst it would have been a golden one for him, probably came a little bit too soon. He still needs to hone himself perhaps in, in Super Formula, where he's doing very well right now, obviously very experienced in Formula 2. And again, this provides Red Bull that opportunity to see what they have in Ricardo or even Sonoda and Perez going forward before they make that decision on Lawson in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if, if I had a crystal ball, I mean, it'd be fantastic. Fantastic to see where things were coming um, down the line. Liam Lawson is next man up. Perez, if he can't, you know, fix his slide or he can't acquiesce his position within the team, he got very hot into the. Look, I can do a Nico Rosberg this season. I mean, we all were writing, you know, thought pieces on can he be the the Nico Rosberg this season, and he can't be. And so now, even if he does kind of settle down get back into where they'd expect him to be on a Saturday and therefore getting one-twos on a Sunday, he's going to have to play second fiddle. Does he want to do that long-term? Daniel Ricciardo, could he take the fight to Max? I really don't know if he could. Max is a very different driver from the driver he was when when Ricciardo left Red Bull. But I think they're maybe hoping that you stick him back in an environment where he did well previously and it's like you just turn the clock back. It's like the McLaren thing never happened. That's the gamble. But if one of those doesn't come through, just stick Liam Lawson in the Alphatari. That's It seemingly is quite simple on that front. Yeah, it does seem rather convenient for Red Bull that for once in the last few years, they do have a plan A, a plan B, a plan C. They're probably on plan B right now, but in a way it, it still works out for them and gives them options going forward. So I'm sure over the next six months or so, or maybe even longer than that, we'll see how things play out where those seats are. It's a nice little game of Red Bull AlphaTauri musical chairs right now. We'll just be interesting to see who fills those spots. Um, talking about Ricardo in particular, 
there was a lot of emphasis on the sim work that he's been doing this season. At the start of the season, one of Red Bull's entourage went as far as saying it was effing dreadful. Um, and in addition to that, there has been improvements that have been made according to Red Bull over time that Ricardo has been much more representative of the pace they were hoping he would be at. A little bit of the old Ricardo, if you like. Um, how true that is, obviously, only Red Bull and Ricardo really know about this. But then there was the Pirelli tyre test at Silverstone uh, just yesterday. And Red Bull, despite the fact that they were talking this up for some time beforehand, it was quite interesting to see some of the data that was being released from this tyre test. And we don't often get data or any timings or anything from the tyre test. Uh, Pirelli are usually very tight-lipped about these things. And of course, Pirelli are controlling the the situations and circumstances that the drivers are doing their tire t- the tyre test in. And... I think the line from certain sources, according to Red Bull, was Daniel Ricciardo did a time with the 127s, which would have been good enough for the front row of the grid. I don't think that was true at all, actually. I think someone said it was, um, uh, I can't remember what ties he was doing it on, but they said the time itself would have been good enough for like a top seven, which obviously would have been better than what Perez had done, all jokes aside. But uh, given the change of conditions compared to what we had in qualifying, and we don't know what the tyres would have been like compared to the soft tyres that they would have done their quality laps at Silverstone on Saturday. It is a little bit disingenuous in that regard. It almost felt like Red Bull were trying to justify the decision they were making to get rid of De Vries and put Ricardo yeah. in and say, don't worry, guys, Danny is back. It's not the Daniel Ricardo of McLaren who's fallen away. He still knows how to drive an F1 car very fast. Yeah, it's it's spin. It's PR. And let's face it, Red Bull are a huge drinks company, but they're actually more a marketing company. Um, and that's what that is, because y- yes, the, the time may have been good enough for, for the front row of the grid, but it was a weekend with changeable conditions. So the track is getting washed away and re-scrubbed in time and time again. And then, yeah, based on weather conditions, a lap time that is good and representative can differ by over a, well over a second day day to day or, or session by session so it that's not really representative but i think yeah it was a, look look we're making a good decision here here's something to back that up um and it's, it's funny because i think from a yeah as i say in the court of public opinion they maybe felt that they that's what they had to do given how um quick they were to axe nick de Vries. i think it's funny that they went with the wording of front row rather than fastest time because um obviously they would have wanted to demonstrate or prove that Ricardo was fast enough to put that car where it should have been and that's right next to Max Verstappen but not necessarily in front of him obviously don't want to ruffle any feathers there or recreate a rivalry that uh, Max and Danny probably wouldn't have want to reflect on too much over the years since then um but in in terms of the measuring stick for Ricardo where do you think that is because you you touched on this earlier with Alvatari mm. Sonoda is going to be a very good barometer for Ricardo is he expected yeah. to be as quick as Sonoda does he need to beat Sonoda um and also on the flip side where does this sit for Sonoda because he's in an interesting dynamic too now because for him this was a almost a make or break season for him he had to beat Nick DeVries and beat him well and I think we can all agree that he did that quite emphatically and has been the highlight for AlphaTauri this year but now Ricardo's coming into this team is there any increased pressure on on Sonoda's shoulders now does he need to demonstrate he can beat Ricardo to be in the frame for Red Bull or does he just need to keep doing what he's doing and see what happens next well this is the thing and this is testament to how dynamic and multifaceted this situation is 
with Ricardo, as I said before, are they expecting him to match Snowder or, or beat Snowder? And if surely Snowder has to beat Ricardo to be in, in you know, to consider the Red Bull drive or for Red Bull to consider putting Snowder in the drive, rather. Um, I think if he doesn't, I don't think they will. I think it's only if they kind of go, look, yes, Danny's just got in the car. Snowder's been driving for three years straight. But Snowder's still quicker. So you go with the driver that you know is going to be quicker. Um, it's almost kind of a redundant point in some ways. I think if Snowder doesn't match Ricardo, I can't see them. I can't see them getting rid of Snowder. I think they just would simply wouldn't promote Liam Lawson next season if they decided to keep Ricardo in the AlphaTauri because Perez has done enough to keep his Red Bull seat. I think the most likely scenario is that Perez goes, Sonoda or Ricardo steps up, Liam Lawson then fills the the vacant seat. So yeah, I think it's less critical for Sonoda, but I, I do think he is a more critical part than people maybe give him credit for. I think he is still in the rebel conversation. Yeah, absolutely. It almost felt like Sonoda was the alternative that Red Bull could turn to if they were very, very desperate and couldn't get someone else in. We had heard rumours that they were talking to a few other drivers outside of the Red Bull programme. I think there were rumours on social media this morning that they'd even approached Charles Leclerc's camp about the possibility of maybe him partnering Max Verstappen. And, and what a scintillatingly uh, tasty lineup that would have been um, if it does happen. Exactly. And I think that's where maybe actually where Yuki is a... Uh, an equally good proposition to Ricardo, where you kind of think Ricardo would probably see out the final couple of years of his his career uh, in the Red Bull. Sonoda, I think, could be a good placeholder in the fight for, say, Lando Norris in twenty twenty six or or Charles Leclerc, and that again very much speaks to a changing in the philosophy of how that seat, uh, you know, kind of the A B split, driver one, driver two, works in Red Bull. Are they kind of getting ready for Verstappen stepping away? Do, 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 yeah, is that more of a concern than they're maybe letting on? I can't personally see it. I just think they want to have two drivers who are going at it um, because it makes the sport more entertaining. They keep the dominance. They keep that gap from the rest of the field, but they also get all eyes on them because look how great this title fight is between two drivers. You know, everyone talks about 2016. Was 2016 a great season or did you just have a great inter-team battle? Yeah, I mean, you could argue in a way it was both. I mean, up and down the grid, obviously, you wouldn't argue that. But uh, when the headline act, as we've often said on this show, is the world championship and who's winning the races, sometimes when that is ex the exciting story, everything else just doesn't really matter or is immaterial yeah. in that regard. Um, but it is an interesting point with Sonoda. As we've established already, I think Sonoda's been very good this season. I don't yeah. know if Red Bull see him as a serious option for that seat in the future, but if there are, they have a lack of options and alternatives and Sonoda's proven he is quick enough, then that could open the door for him. But um, it will be interesting to see how Ricardo compares to Sonoda. You do often feel that, he, at the very least, Ricardo has to demonstrate that he can beat Sonoda for the remainder of the season. We'll have to wait and see how that goes. Um, for sure. There is an element to this as well with Ricardo, uh, not just about, you know, having his last chance saloon in Formula One, but perhaps a bit of redemption. And, you yeah. know, Ricardo winning the Monaco Grand Prix 
back in uh, what was it was it 2018 it was I think it was or 2017 I can't remember which one it was but um, a redemption for the season where yeah. he should have won the Monaco Grand Prix and they yeah. forgot to put all the tyres out for him so he's familiar with redeeming himself in certain circumstances and given how things played out at McLaren McLaren have had a history where they've often cited problems not of their own doing or it's out of their control and you know, we can go on and on and on about the Honda element to this and, and the Renault engines, etc., etc. And now they're looking in very good shape now, probably the best that they've looked um, in a long, long time at the moment. An interesting comment Lando Norris made was regarding the weaknesses of the car, i.e. in the slower speed corners, it's still a little bit heavy and laggy sometimes and that they were only 30% fixed. And this kind of lined up with probably the biggest weakness Ricardo has in terms of the inconsistencies of a car He's not able to have that natural feel or get or drive around the car's problems in the same way that Lando Norris could, but in by, in comparison. Now that Ricardo's back in Formula One, do you feel that this is an opportunity to perhaps prove once and for all that this wasn't just a Ricardo problem that led to his downfall McLaren? This was also a McLaren problem, at the very least, as much as his. Absolutely. If he can come in and say and, and perform well, uh, I don't think he needs to crush Yuki Zanola, uh in performance and, and points. I think he just needs to be competitive with him. I think he can say, look, look, I've still got it. And McLaren just was not the environment for me. It wasn't the car for me. Um, you know, it was, I, I saw someone giving some analysis and saying that under braking, it, there wasn't enough kind of feel or, you know, kind of, it just, it was counter to Daniel's driving style which wasn't conducive for, for a quick lap time. And that is a big part of it. Sometimes you get in a car and, you know, it's different from the one you've been in before. And we I think we all think that all F1 cars are the same. They, they can be very, very different, uh, particularly when you're a driver who's very, very sensitive to incremental changes. Uh, and, it yeah, it wasn't the environment for Ricardo. I also think a lot needs to be said of the McLaren environment generally, which has some similarities to Red Bull. You've got... McLaren IndyCar drivers who who last season were openly kind of mocking Zach Brown and McLaren for oh yeah well we've all been practice assessed in an F1 car like that that kind of suggests there's some discontent some mismanagement and that clearly all fed into Ricardo not being where he he needed to be to perform and speaking to your point earlier about Ricardo not looking as quick as he should have been at the start of the year when he came back to Red Bull. Christian Horner was very quick to say, he came back and he was underweight. He came back and he was like, what has happened to this guy? He's entirely different. It just clearly really took its toll on Ricardo. And I think that improvement, that recovery that he's most likely had over the last six or so months is a big reason as to how we got to where we are today. And that's a great point because often a, a Formula One driver's number one asset is confidence. And if an F1 driver isn't driving confidently or they don't have trust in the car, they're not going to be fast. And there is that element of that with McLaren over the last couple of years. You know, it's just that because they had such an exceptional driver in Lando Norris, it was quite easy to mask those issues where it made Ricardo look average when the reality could be that Ricardo wasn't bad. It's just the car just didn't play to his strengths and he wasn't able to go around it. So... That is also an important factor as well. It'll be interesting to see how Ricardo does in this Alpha Tower. Can he redeem himself and claw back a little bit of uh, dignity in that regard that perhaps left him when he was at McLaren? Talking about Perez, 
because I think Perez is a key element to all of this. You know, it's very easy for us to kind of put the dominoes in place saying, okay, this has happened. Now this is going to happen. This is going to happen. And Ricardo's going to end up at Red Bull fighting Max in 2024. And that could be a Titanic championship battle. And everyone is loving that, you know, like Hamilton Rosberg 2.0, but the Red Bull version. It sounds nice on the surface, but with respect to Sergio Perez, the ever since Ricardo came back to Red Bull, it's always felt to me that this is very much a, a warning to Sergio Perez. We don't have to draw too many conclusions or narratives from what went down at Monaco last season. Max Verstappen being annoyed at Perez and that obviously filtering through into the Brazilian Grand Prix finish where Max refused to give up the place to Checo when Max didn't need the points. Checo needed the points for P2. Ultimately, it wouldn't have mattered whether he'd have got it or not because Charles had enough of a buffer to cover for that. But since Ricardo's come back into the team, I've always felt that it's been a way that Red Bull been able to say to Perez, they said, look, we're happy with you at the moment, but if your performance drops uh, beyond a certain threshold for too long a period and it starts to cause us problems, we've got a replacement ready and lined up to take your seat if and when we choose to do so. That's absolutely spot on, I think. Uh, it's a very much a, a tactic from from their point. And Perez is, is the critical factor here because he's the domino that if he doesn't fall, it makes whatever happens behind less interesting. It then becomes a, do you keep Ricardo in the AlphaTauri for 2024 or do you put Liam Lawson in it? And that is it, basically. That's that's the only that's the only kind of factor. But if Ricardo top go, uh, sorry, if Perez goes, that's when it goes. Well, who goes in the Red Bull? Who goes in the AlphaTauri? And that's when it kind of gets uh, difficult. I think where Sergio Perez has misplayed his hand this year. And that dissatisfaction, that tension was coming from Brazil. And even before that, the Monaco incident last year, where he wants to be able to take it to Max. But if you shoot the king, you've got to kill him. And that's what we've seen this season. He took aim and he missed. And from Miami, it's been totally, totally, a totally different situation for him. So now you've got a situation where publicly they're being very supportive which is again I uh, spoke earlier about this kind of this flip or this reversal in how Red Bull and AlphaTauri are operating and you know Christian Horner actually said to me the other the other night he's I think he's the kind of guy that needs an arm around his shoulder which is very un-Red Bull like in terms of managing a driver but then he also said when asked um, by someone else when does this lull in qualifying become a concern and he goes well Sergio is still P2 in the championship. And in fact, he increased his performance, his uh, his gap to Fernando in P2 today. Um, and that is telling. That's low. As long as he's in P2, we're okay. If this goes on much longer and Fernando can close that gap, that starts to become an issue. So I think, yeah, it's not all sunshine and rainbows behind the scenes. How they're managing it could be quite different to how we maybe expect. But... Ultimately, if he doesn't get it together, and this is where, again, where he kind of needs to acquiesce with his position in the team. If he does find that form again, I think now he's lost any opportunity to say, I want to fight for a championship. It's no, if you want to be here, you're you're second driver. And that is it. Yeah, that's your your role here. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more on this one. And and the questions are going to keep coming for as long as this poor form continues. And, and, And to some degree... This news has probably come at the worst time for Checo because his form has not been great. You know, 
we already talked about this already, you know, five times he's failed to make it into Q3 in a row. Three of those, he didn't even get out of Q1 in a car that should at the very minimum be qualifying on the front row that his teammate is dominating in at the moment. And yes, his performances have been good on a Sunday where he's been able to recover those positions. I, I would still argue that Silverstone was a bit of an outlier for that because he had that safety car to help him. And even then, he only got as far as P6. And you know, there, there is something that needs to be said for that as well. And now that Ricardo is coming at this seat at AlphaTauri, it's going to create even more pressure on Sergio Perez. And, and whilst perhaps he has kind of rubbished these rumours or, you know, said he's not too worried about this because he's been in F1 for like 13 years, he's seen it all, he has that contract for next season at the moment, it almost feels right now that the pressure is going to get more and more intense and he has to find a way to deal with that and be better because the reality is this situation is very much in Checo's control. You know, this isn't a situation like De Vries found himself in where it almost felt like it was inevitable that he was going to be replaced, that no matter what he would do, he wasn't the flavour of the month Red Bull wanted him out because the reality is for Checo right now is that if he starts to perform the way that Red Bull want him to, and by that I mean not necessarily beat Max Verstappen, although that wouldn't exactly go against him if he was to do that in certain Mm. regards. But if he played the wingman role, if he was able to put himself in the top two or in prime position where inevitably if Max Verstappen has a reliability issue or makes a mistake and isn't able to win a race, Checo is there to capitalise that. And if he can do that in the same way that Bottas did year after year after year when he was Hamilton's teammate, he will still be driving that Red Bull next season. If he's not, and Ricardo starts performing at the level where people say, oh, actually, he could be in that Red Bull next year, chances are he probably will be. Completely. And the next race in Hungary is Red Bull's opportunity to take the all-time longest race-winning streak from McLaren from the 88 season. If Sergio isn't there in P2 to uh, to back Max up, I think there's going to be some tension there because if they lose that because Sergio underperformed in qualifying, I can imagine them and they'll say it's just a record, but these things kind of, you want to show that dominance. You want to show, yeah, we've, yeah, we've nailed it. I think for, for Perez, the only way that pressure really comes from below in AlphaTauri is if Sonoda continues to score points and Ricardo crushes him still and is scoring multiple points at various races or vice versa and you say actually maybe that is where the car is but this driver is just really outperforming and actually do, do we just make the change anyway Th- that's the only kind of real situation is it's at this stage in Sergio Perez's hand hands he can keep that seat it's whether he wants to keep that seat ultimately um and yeah he he needs to win a few races. He needs to continue that streak for a ball. I don't think that causes too many issues now. He's clearly going to get Peter in the championship. Um, but yeah, it's just a, where does he land? If, if not Red Bull, where for him? Yeah, exactly. And I think that is the key point, that last part there. Where for him after Red Bull? Because this isn't like a, a Bottas situation or even a Seb Vettel situation to some respect or a Raikkonen situation where if, they lose their seats at a top team. There'll be other teams in the midfield sort of clamouring to get him in because where is there to go? There are a lot of these big seats that are locked down long-term. There isn't sort of a mid-team project where you can sort of come in and help them out and, and try and bring them further forward. 
maybe somewhere like Alfa Romeo, for example, if I'm if I'm clutching at straws or even Haas, but then would they want to pay the money that Checo would warrant to drive for their teams or would Checo want to go there? For all argument's sake, I'm with you on this one, Sam. I feel for Checo this could be make or break for his F1 career. If things do not improve and Ricardo or even Sonoda shows the form that Red Bull will raise a few eyebrows with and think, actually, we want them in our car. We could end up in a in a 2020 situation again with Checo where he's literally fighting for his F1 career. Yeah, completely. The, the only place that it seems like a natural fit would be Aston Martin. And Fernando Alonso has been so exceptional that why would, why would you make that change? You just wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. And let's face yeah. it, unless Lance Stroll turns around and says, like, I really just don't want to race anymore. This is I'm I'm done. I'm 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 fed up. I'd, I'm over it. He's surely going to just keep in the seat as long as he wants it. Yeah, unless there's something absolutely crazy, something worthy of WWE, perhaps where Lawrence Stroll learns that Sergio Perez is his illegitimate son, and of course this is like obviously this is ridiculous here. <laughs> like realms ridiculous, and he's got to find him a seat as well now because he's got two sons. Like, but uh, yeah, this is that would be something right out of the WWE playbook. So obviously I'm messing around here, but uh, yeah, that that's kind of the realms we're going with at the moment. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. So those those options become a yeah become more and more difficult for Perez. And and could you argue that this is a an argument for an eleventh team, potentially? Maybe I have to have a word with Brad Pitt, see if he's uh, fancies a third driver in his F one team. But um, I think that's all we got really time for this one. I think we've covered quite a lot in this one. I'm very excited to see Daniel Ricciardo on the grid again. I, I I'm with you, Sam. I didn't think I was expecting to see that again, but now that it is, I'm very much looking forward to seeing how this plays out. It's a very nice narrative to add to an F1 season which in some respects we've had to look for narratives to be excited about excluding the dominance of Max Verstappen and Red Bull at the moment um but before we go Sam uh, for the benefit of our listeners and viewers that have tuned into the show where can they find you on social media to get more great content analysis from yourself uh so I am on Twitter on at Samuel T. Coop um I'm also on threads albeit st- still fairly sporadically and instagram i think i'm at samuel thomas coop uh there um but formula nerds are on socials as well on twitter uh, threads instagram also formula nerds.com um so yeah we've also got a couple of podcasts but you know obviously i don't yeah, I don't know if I can plug those. No, you can, of course, no, of course yeah. you can. Please okay. do. Because um, we're going to put all of this in the description in the show notes anyway. So please okay. do plug away. You can also find us um, in the podcast world as well. Uh, we have the midweek news from the Nerds show. And we also have our race review, which is Cut to the Race. So yeah, there's uh, we're all over the place. So uh, I'm sure you'll come across us. Yeah, absolutely great stuff. And I can recommend that having checked those out personally. Really, really good content. So uh, yeah, get subscribed and get following guys. But of course, as always, if uh, you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to like the video, subscribe to the YouTube channel if you're watching this. And of course, if you are new, don't forget to leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform as well. Really helps us out a lot. But until next time, guys, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you in the Hungarian Grand Prix preview. Of course, we'll be making some new predictions regarding one Daniel Ricciardo. Hotly anticipated. Can't wait to see it. And I'm sure you can't either. But until next time, guys, thanks for tuning in. Please stay safe. And we'll see you in the next episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. And remember, as always, if you're not first, you're probably DNF1. Take care.
Social Podcast Network.